Now we're reading from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And we're reading from verse 23. Acts 4, verse 23. We know that as we read that God will bless his special word to our hearts and to our lives. Acts 4, verse 23. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for all good things to us. And we thank you, Father, for the tremendous work that our Saviour did there upon that wooden gate. And as we come to your word, Lord, we pray that you would touch our hearts as well as our minds, that you would touch our lives as well as the visible expression of worship. And we pray, Lord, that in your word, you would do us good. And we think of our world and all its need. We think of the situation there in Ukraine and Russia. And Lord, we don't know what to say about that, but we do pray into it that you would just bring as quick an end to that war situation as soon as possible. Also remember your children who are suffering persecution, so many of them, Lord, on a daily basis. Lord, draw me to them, we pray, and encourage their hearts in the middle of their storm. So we turn to you now in your word, and we pray that you would do us good and encourage us in the things of God. We ask it in your name. Amen. Verse 23, then, of Acts chapter 4. People and John have been before the Sanhedrin, and we continue the reading from this particular verse. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, Thou art God, which have made heaven and earth and the sea, and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage, and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For a truth against thy holy child Jesus Christ, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the disciples and the people of Israel, will gather together. For to do whatever thy hand and thy counsel determined beforehand to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with great boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thy hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they prayed, the place was shaken when they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them aught of the things which he possessed was alone, but they are all things common. But great power gave the apostle witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now there was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made into every man according as in need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which has been interpreted the Son of Consolation, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, 
brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Amen to God's wonderful truth. I want us to go this morning, if we can, in our thought, in our imagination, and very especially in Scripture, to New Testament days. Now, the New Testament church, of course, wasn't perfect. It too had its struggles, it too had its difficulties, but there is so much we can learn as we read particularly the opening chapters in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. I know it was often referred to, understandably, as the Acts of the Apostles, but of course, it was the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles to reach out to a needy world. And there's one word that I want to leave with you this morning. And I trust it will be indelibly imprinted not only in your mind, but in your heart. It's an interesting word, a very powerful word. It certainly expressed something, if not a lot, as to what God was doing in the New Testament church. You see, when we look at the Acts of the Apostles, we discover that something great was going on. Something great was going on. It was something that for thousands of years the Jewish people were looking forward to. And it's something since the day of Pentecost that you can I look back upon and see what God indeed was doing in the hearts and lives of people. So what is the word that I want to leave with you? As we think of the church on fire, the church of flame for God, and the church moving on with great force and impact. Remember we used to sing a hymn, perhaps hopefully still do, like a mighty army moves the church of God, brothers we are treading where the saints have trod. Someone has globalized that by saying, like a mighty tortoise moves the church of God. Brothers we are treading where we've always trod. Certainly that's not true there in the New Testament. Something great was going on. Vance Havner was born in 1901. He was a great preacher, raconteur, and a teacher of the Word of God. His writings and a lot of what he says still resonates in my own mind and heart today. Perhaps he does in yours. When thinking about the church, this is what he said. And I find this captivating. The church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Isn't that interesting? The church is a hospital for sinners, for needy people, who in various ways need God's help, and not just a museum for saints. As you and I move around the country, we come across a lot of church buildings that unfortunately have become, to a certain extent, Museums. In the Alabama, where I began my ministry those many, many years ago, there are so many Methodist churches in particular that have become just dwelling houses for folk in need. Very good that folk have found some kind of help there, but very sad. Once in days of the movement of God's Spirit, the church building has become just a house for folk to live in. But when we come to the New Testament, as I said, something great was going on. Hannah said that there are three problems that we have in our generation. 
I remember he said this nearly a hundred years ago. He said, problem number one is anarchy in the world. Problem number two is apostasy in the professing church. Problem number three is apathy among the evangelical people. Three problems. Now within that time span, we certainly can identify more than ever in our century with anarchy in the world. What is happening? We hear the news, we read our papers, we follow whatever may be on our phone or iPad, and we say the whole world, from a natural point of view, seems to be in absolute chaos. Whether it be government, whether it be problems in relation to day-to-day -day living, there's more anarchy in the world now than there was in Vance's time. What about apostasy in the professing church? Where this Bible is read, yes, but is it believed? Where the Word of God is preached, but is it preached in truth? Where the Bible, God's precious Word of truth, is it really relied upon for every aspect of life? Oh no. Apostasy in the church. Denial in so many churches of the virgin birth, of the inspiration of scripture, and the acceptance of so many things now that we take for granted that certainly were not evident. Even when I came to Ulster, it was 50 odd years ago. And so there's anarchy in the world, all right, as Van said, but there's also apostasy in the professing church. But what was it he said regarding apathy in the evangelical church? He said, believe it or not, that the biggest problem is not apostasy in the church or anarchy in the world. The biggest problem is apathy among God's people. A little boy said, uh, when his mother asked him the question, you're apathetic, son. He said, yes, I couldn't care less. <laughs> so easy to be apathetic, to tip over, to go through the motions on a, a weekly basis. That certainly was not the impact or the imprint of God in the New Testament. So what's the word, folks? Well, in the only chapters, this word appears five times. And it is the word Great, great. The original word in Greek is the word megas. I know a number of years ago when the, uh, many of the young folk came into contact with something that they overwhelmed their thinking, they would say, my, that was mega, mega. Now, I don't know whether the young folk still say that today now, but little did they know that they were quoting nearly a Greek word, megas. Something great was going on. So follow through with me in the five greats that are mentioned here. Now each particular great demands a complete study in itself. And so this is an overview that you might get to it yourself and say, Lord, uh, do I long and engrange with the new pastor, the wife coming, family, do I long that you might do something great or do we just take a walk? Something special, I'll go through what we've gone through for the last 50 or whatever years. Something great was going on. 
Look at the word here, just for a moment, I'll put the five out, and we'll begin, and when we finish about six o'clock this afternoon, when we finish a little later on, I'm just, just pointing these things out, and you're being able to get some personal study, which will be a greater benefit than listening to me. But notice these particular words here, verse 29, mentions made there in our authorized version, all boldness. It is not the word megas, but it's a word that is very simple, very similar, and it means great, great. Much greatness is the literal translation there. So there was great boldness. Verse 33, and with great power, great power, gave the apostle witness of the resurrection. So there's great boldness, and there's great power. And then the same verse we read this, and great grace was upon them all. So there was great boldness, all right, there was great power, but also there was great grace. Third grade. We'll go to the next chapter in 5, verse 5, and it's repeated twice, also in verse 11, great fear. So there's great boldness and great power and great grace, but there's great fear. That's the fourth grade. And then filling over the page, Acts chapter 8, verse 8, we come to the last grade that we have in these early chapters. And it is a, a great that I'm glad it's great and I'm glad it's there. But we read this, and there was great joy in that city. We glad that's there. It's good to have boldness, good to have power, good to have grace, good to have fear. But our the Christian faith is a joyful faith, isn't it? Not an evangelic ring, but something that's rooted there within the heart. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So having mentioned those five things, you can either stick with me or go to sleep because you had a heavy day yesterday. And try to capture something of what the New Testament is calling in the early church. Something great was going on. So walk with me then through these five in the time that we go together. Number one then, in Acts 4 verse 29, there was great boldness, and that affected their speech. For we read here that already the apostles were praying, and also they were asking that their speech might not bring them into contact with God himself, but might enable them, within their own world, to speak with boldness, Concerning the message of salvation. And so we have this, this, this wonderful thing, great boldness. Boldness to approach God and seek God. And boldness in seeking God and drawing from Him to live in a world whereby with lit, and also with life of course, because if life doesn't back up the lit, then our, our words are superfluous. But when life backs up the lit, and we are demonstrating the fact that we know this living Saviour, that we belong to Him, and that is real to us, then our speech to God and to others will be effective. And so what we're saying about the early church folks, what we're saying an awful lot, but the basic principle here is that we, we need to be prayerful. Before we can speak to people, we need to speak to God. Before we can reach out to the lost, then we need to reach out to him. And we saw that in the PowerPoint, you know, just as we, we came at the beginning of our service day. It's your range bottle there. 
And so then with great boldness they, they unashamedly came through the veil to speak to God in prayer. And they also went out to a needy world share their faith. And I'm convinced more than ever that these two are husband and wife or brother and sister. This whole prayerful ministry that brings us into the practicality of reaching out in faith. With great boldness they did that. So I want to challenge your heart this morning as I challenge my own. Are we a prayerful people? Do we really seek the Lord and uh, ask God to bless not just me, myself and I and my wife's husband, but the work of the church and the work of the area? Do we really pray? I remember in my early days as a Christian, it was many, many years ago in the last century. I went along to the uh, little gospel hall through whom I heard the gospel and became a Christian, which is, you heard part of my story some months back. But I remember this particular prayer meeting. I was sitting there, only a very young Christian. And this elderly brother got up, and this is what he prayed, Lord, here we are in the prayer meeting. And everyone else is away enjoying themselves. Now I couldn't believe it. I was young in the face. And he certainly conveyed to me the thought at that time, I'm sure that perhaps I was wrong, but he certainly conveyed the thought, that we're locked into some kind of prayer for an hour, and everyone else is having a great time. That's not what we discover in Scripture. Did you know that in every chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, God's people prayed? Look at, uh, back upon my lengthy pastoral ministry for a long time. If there is one regret that I do have, and of course there are many, because we all have regrets in relation to things that in the past, one regret is that I have not been the prayerful man that I should have been. And if I had the opportunity to begin again, which I won't, I certainly would have given myself more time personally and publicly to get into the reality of being in touch with the living God. And as churches, we need to have a look at that, don't we? So often the smallest gathering in our fellowship is the premium, is it not? Wherever we go, unfortunately, I found this. Smallest meeting of the Lord. And you know, it's, it's somewhat overwhelming, and, and to use an old word, is bamboozling. If we believe in the living God, if we're toying in the living God, and we should believe in the fact that the ministry of prayer is crucial. Great bonus. For as we reach out to others, we need to reach out to God. So there's great boldness there with regard to their speech. Secondly, in verse 33, they began to speak with great power. <coughs> of course, that doesn't only affect their speech, but it affects their, their strength. 1 Kings 18, 14 is a lovely verse. It says this, that special strength was given to Elijah. Special strength. And so if here we discover that the people of God with great power, with great strength, impacted the community. 3,000 at least in one day converted. Amazing, isn't it? 
Now why the church in those early days of the Acts of the Apostles begin to go, do we view that as a thing of the past? Or, or do we think about the day when the grange will be packed to capacity with every seat filled? With room more than enough to cope with more within the area? God wants to work in great power among his people. Some years ago, I was a pastor in Port Stewart. I was making my way across the, the large uh, car park that they had up there, and I met a lady that I, I knew very well. She said to me this morning, Pastor, Pastor, she said, that, I hope nothing supernatural happens this morning. Now I knew what she was saying. I knew that within certain Christian communities, and uh, they don't answer God for that, and they believe that, of course, that there is a, a kind of, if I may, as kind as possible, and I want to be, I don't want to be disparaging, there is a lunatic fringe. Forgive me if I'm being critical here. Who seem to live in a world whereby Power is demonstrated in certain supernatural phenomena that's not necessarily biblical, but you need to have the fizz and the buzz. I remember some years ago in Belfast, you know, there was a demon going on the brain. He said, Lord, he said that the meeting's been good today. He said, the preaching's been good and the singing's been good. And well, that testimony, that's been good. But then he said this, but Lord, you should have been here last week. You should have been here last week. I mean, where was the dear man? That's not even a critical smile. I don't mean to be. But it's so easy to get locked into a kind of lunatic set. And so I can understand where the lady was coming from. I hope something supernatural does happen this morning. And I said to a dear, I said, I hope that there is. Because we're not just going along to another meeting. Or to meet in fellowship and friendship with, with other folk that are like-minded. That's all important. We're not just going along to sing praises and to hear notices and to find out what God is doing in the church. We're going for all those things, but we're going along to meet a supernatural God. And you and I are coming this morning, folks, us praying in the car, Lord, I want to meet with you. You just come along to hear the preacher, then you'll be disappointed. Come along because if you know who want to come, then, well, you might be helped a bit, but if you come along to meet with God, not to listen to boasting the Lord again, but to really meet with the Lord, who knows what can Great power. Or as I say, there's a, there's a study in those verses themselves, but we would be better stop there because there's a lot more to say. So there was a work of God in great boldness in their speech. There was great power in their strength. But then wonderfully, we discover in verse 33, we've got to note it. And with great power gave the apostle witness to the resurrection of the Lord in man. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And it says this. And great grace was upon them all. 
And I'm sure we have, on one hand, power. Yet on the other hand, we have grace. So not only is there speech, and not only is there strength, but there is sweetness demonstrated in and through the lives of God's people. Now we're not talking about a, a, a too sweet kind of sweetness. I'm talking about that. But we're talking about grace. Grace. If the grace of God to us is overwhelming, which it is, and if God's unmerited favour is demonstrated to us as individuals, which it is, and if you and I know the love of God expressed totally through the cross that we're singing about, the first sober light, which it is, how much more should we be graceful people? I mean, for example, grace, love manifested in the workplace. I'm convinced that life basically is about one thing. Please feel free to disagree with me on this. Life's about relationships. Our relationship with God, yes. But our relationship with other people. And if for whatever reason those relationships are not what they should be, then God can't really bless us. And so then when we ask ourselves the question, what is my relationship like in my job? In the folk that know me well. In the, in the situation that I find myself in on a day-to-day -day basis. What is my relationship there? Is it graceful? As far as the New Testament is concerned, among God's people, there was a grace. But not just grace within work, which is one big area, but within the home. The place where you are treated the best and grumbled the most, it's a general statement, but it's often true. Men, what's your relationship with your wife today? Wives or husbands? Children with parents? What's it like? There was one church when I was a pastor quite a number of years ago where a couple came into the church and Christian people and uh, during the service they held hands, which that's what they wanted to do, that's fine. But no one knows, and I can say now because it's so far away and saying anonymously, that although they held hands in church, they fought like cap and dog alone. Who was the one that had to go in there and try to bring some kind of peace? You know as well as I that the divorce rate among Christians is on a par with the divorce rate in the world. What goes wrong? I'm not saying it's, it's an easy thing to solve or, or work through. There are many, many complex issues and the Lord knows have been involved in quite a few to try to bring some help. But where is grace? In the home. Oh, we know so well, don't we, that those that we live with know the buttons to press to get the the right or the wrong response. Don't we, husbands? 
Don't we wives? Don't we children? Do you know what button to press? Yet the question of relationships and the question of sweetness is going to work at home. If God's grace is not working in your home and my home, then something wrong. Something wrong. I often say to young people that are married over the years, you know, of course they don't believe a word of it when they are standing there in front of you with them and you're going through the, the various things. They don't believe in a word, word I say when I say when I look. Today's a very important day, we'll have a great day together, but uh, Love is blind and marriage is the eye opener. They don't believe that. They think that once you're married, then for the rest of your life there's going to be no problem. I've yet to meet any couple who said there have never been any problems in a marriage. That's what life's about. If someone says to me, well, Val, I've never, we've never had a crossword in our lives, he's either living in cuckoo land or he's telling me lies. Relationships in the home. It's so easy, isn't it, to come to church and uh, put on the evangelist smile and things are thwarted at home. But before we move on to the fourth grace, at work's one thing to have grace, at home's another thing to have grace. But what about the church? eh? What about it? As I move around, which I've been doing for a long time now, there have been places where the fellowship's been good, but I've been to many a place where friction on God's people. Someone gave me a book many years ago, which I still got called, this is the title of the book, believe it or not, Great Church Fights, I've known What a title for a book, eh? Great Church Fights, I've known. Why is it that there is so much division? It may begin, and this is my own experience, it may begin with some kind of doctrinal issue that you're not happy about, then we've got to get to the point where we agree to disagree without being disagreeable. We've got to get there. But my discovery is, a hundred percent, although it begins perhaps with a doctrinal disagreement, it soon deteriorates into a temperamental problem. Personality clash. His view's not right. Her view's way up the list. Great power, but great risk. What a combination. A sweetness among God's people. If God is gracious to us, which He is constantly, and we don't deserve His grace, Whenever we come to the Lord's table, we're amazed that He should love us, unworthy though we are. And how much more should we be graceful people? We may sinner inside about things, we may get upset, we may get angry, as we do, we may get annoyed, etc., etc. 
And we say, Lord, thank you for your love to me. I want to be gracious, loving to us. Greatness. Fourth, very, very quickly now, it's 10 to 1, so very, very quickly. As you see, there's a lot in here, and, uh, well, that's a little In chapter 5, great fear. Mentioned twice. Notice 5 5. Great fear came on all men that heard these things. Community. God was at work. And then in verse 11, great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. So, so great fear was demonstrated there in the church. So the church were not only graceful and powerful, but the church had a genuine fear of God. And, and folks, I, I wonder within myself whether we as a church fellowship have this genuine fear of God. It's not a cringing fear, it's not a scary fear. Well, when we do wrong, then understandably we experience that. But it is a fear whereby we have a genuine reverence for God. As someone has said, today God has become almighty, not almighty. A real awareness of God. Now in this particular chapter, which is a fearsome chapter by the way, there are two characters, Anna and I, sister a husband and wife. And the chapter is dealing with the, the big problem of hypocrisy. And as a result of their hypocritical stand, where they came into the service and visibly they demonstrated the fact that they were giving like everyone else, which they were, but they were keeping back part of the price. And it wasn't coming out because of their holding back of the price, really, that's part of it. What was the difficulty was that they were more concerned about show than about reality. An old preacher of my God day said that if God weren't like this today, we'd have to put a funeral chapel, a funeral building on the side of every church if God weren't like this. Great fear. And awareness of God. No, that needs to be in the equation, doesn't it? That we acknowledge that, that He is the Lord. That he is the Lord. And there's a sense of God in the meaning. As you gather, like a settlement, Peter, a lot of prayer meetings and one prayer meeting, there's dear old woman, God bless her, pray, Lord, we thank you for good meetings, but we're sick and tired of good meetings. We need something more. And my mind and my heart responded to her. Just another good meeting? Just another good or reasonable preacher? In Acts 5, I remember preaching on this chapter at the Faith Mission Convention in Bangor so many years ago. And I'll tell you, John was coming tonight. Was that that meeting actually? John Porter. Hope you come along to hear me, great guy. But I got scared that day. 
because the Spirit of God, as well as speaking into the congregation, I believe through His Word, is speaking to my own heart. Are there any areas of hypocrisy in me? Great fear. As I read the history of Christianity and not least the history of revival, I discover time and time again that there are a number of things that are common in different circumstances and situations, but one common thing is that the people there, the men there of the Kells, those many, many years ago, sense God's Enough of that. Well, not enough, but I have to finish there. Acts chapter 8, verse 8. Great job. Great boldness and speech, great power and strength, great grace and sweetness, great fear there is, submission to what God wants, the non-hypocrisy, but great joy there is, song. Of course, it all concerns them, the evangelists, and what their incredible man he was. And he went and he preached to the Samaritans that those people who were the outstuffing of society, the other lot over there, Philip went and preached to them. A lot of folk were touched by the power of God, by the power of the cross, by the power of the gospel. It's great joy in us. I'm glad and I'm thrilled and I believe that Christianity is the only quote-unquote religion that can bring joy. It's more than just, as I've said, an evangelist smile. I've got whiter teeth than you have. It is a joy that's there. Now I must confess that sometimes looking down at the congregation from pulpit level, you wonder at times, you know, I'm suggesting that that's true this morning. But joy is more than just a face, a face expression, isn't it? Deeper than that, the joy of the Lord is your strength, as we read in Nehemiah. That deep-seated awareness, yes, that God is with us, but that God has given us joy and peace that transcends all understanding. We cannot have our bone structure. That's how we were made. But all the joy of the Lord. I remember hearing a young man in Bible college when I was teaching there was many years ago. And they all had to give their, their uh, preaching sermon to the, to the class. And this particular fellow, now involved in Presbyterian ministry, has been in evangelism for many, many years, a lovely man. This particular lad looked the most miserable person you ever wish to meet. It was his bone structure. And so you can imagine the reaction when he got up that morning and for his preaching sermon he said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Everyone burned out laughing. But this dear brother was a joyful man. The Lord blessed him. Even although his wife died in awful circumstances. God's joy sustained. Something great was going on. 
because God was at work in a wonderful way. They were courageous, they were strong, they were loving, they were obedient, and they were joyful. And you folk here this morning have discharged my heart and to those watching us online. I trust that you've entered in with us the spirit of the Acts of the Apostles. And it's in my prayer for your future days as a church that great things might happen. Great. Great things. Folks, God can do it. Because it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray together, then we'll sing our final hymn. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your precious word. And even though the preacher this morning feels so inadequate in expressing it, we thank you for this glorious truth. We thank you for speaking to our lives, Lord. We pray you give us great boldness and great power and great grace and great fear and great joy. And we pray that we might be the men and women and young people in Grange or Balmani where we live, that people will take note that we have been Jesus. We draw to Israel. Lord, hear our prayer and have your own way within our lives. In the Savior's name.